and we require belonging. And I think many of us aren't taught that, that sense of belonging is on the same level of food, water, shelter. We have to have a sense of community and belonging in order to survive. to You Need a Counselor podcast. My name is Dr. Julie Johnson. I am a mental health counselor and the owner and founder of Heart and Solutions here in Iowa. Um, we are still providing in-office, in-school, in-home uh, mental health therapy and behavioral health counseling for kiddos. Uh, and we're also doing our telehealth services to anybody in Iowa over the phone and over the computer. I'm Krissa. I am the vice president at Heart and Solutions in charge of our BHIS department. So BHIS stands for Behavioral Health Intervention Services. And that's that program where we work with kids ages four through 18 on different behavioral skills um, in home, in office, in school, or telehealth as well. And this is our podcast, You Need a Counselor. So we are designed for people curious about counseling, but have barriers keeping them from experiencing the benefits of counseling. Our mission is to share stories about counseling, good, bad, and indifferent, and spread the message that everyone can benefit from mental health and behavioral health counseling services. We post every Sunday night at 5 p.m. Central Time. So uh, on Friday afternoon, you will see the little uh, trailer video. And then on Sunday nights, we post the episode uh, on Facebook, on Instagram, and on YouTube, uh, and then on Spotify or anywhere that you listen to podcasts. So uh, check us out on Sunday nights. We always recommend just batch up some tasks that you hate doing, putting away laundry or meal prepping, or uh, we keep adding to this list. Uh, so <laughs> if you want to listen to us on the treadmill or walking around outside now that the weather is getting nicer, um, we just recommend like set a date with yourself, do a date with yourself and with the podcast. And that gives you the entire week to get in touch with a counselor, get in touch with any of the awesome uh, supports that we have on the show for that week as well. So uh, we are very excited today to welcome um, Kara Wackett. And I'm gonna tell you guys a little bit about Kara before we introduce her. Um, so Kara is not only a licensed therapist uh, specializing in uh, eating disorders, specializing in self-love, um, but she also is the founder of Adversity Rising. Um, and so we will be really excited to hear about her agency out there. Um, she is in Portland, Oregon. So if anybody is in that area, um, she is the person to contact. And then she's also the author of a workbook, uh, again, focused on self-love, focused on purposeful living, and it's called I Love Me. Um, and so very, very excited to hear about these projects and these services um, that Kira is doing out there in Oregon. Now, welcome, Kira. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. Now, the first question I have, very important one. Do you say Oregon or Oregon? <laughs> so... It's Oregon, but the irony is that my husband is from Oregon, Wisconsin. And so oh. our family, it's like a crapshoot. Half of them, it's Oregon. <laughs> half of them, it's Oregon. I think I'm 50-50 split. So whatever fits for people, I think works. But I think the technical pronunciation from people here is Oregon. Oregon. Very yes. good. Okay. Oregon. I said it. It's one of those words that as soon as I said it, I was like, that's wrong. And then I thought about <laughs> it the other way and I thought, no, that, that's also wrong. So the moral of the story is they were both correct. <laughs> so welcome, Kira. Thank you so much for being here. So we want to hear about adver adversity rising. Yeah. So I... As you mentioned, I'm a licensed mental health therapist. I am from Wisconsin originally, so in kind of your neck of the woods near Iowa. We moved out here a few years ago, and I had been kind of dabbling in some public speaking work, some other work, in addition to doing my therapy practice. And when I moved out here, I worked in a partial hospitalization program for people with eating disorders, adolescents specifically. I continue to work in an outpatient setting where I see patients in a separate practice. I work as an employee in a different practice. And one of the things that I think 
since even before I started, started my master's journey and started becoming a clinician myself, kind of recognizing that therapy is amazing. It's also not the only entry point and recognizing the shortage of clinical mental health care workers and the number of people that are going to need services. I kind of figured, what can we do to bridge the gap ethically, responsibly, morally, what can I be doing? And so Adversity Rising was really birthed as a way to take some of what I'm doing in the therapy room and make it more accessible for people outside of that space. So whether it's through blogs, through my YouTube videos, I'm launching a program in January of next year called Lip on Purpose. The idea being sometimes we know that that is the appropriate level of support, whether it's therapy or somebody seeing a religious leader, a faith-based leader, somebody that's at that higher level of care. Sometimes people, either before they're ready for it or as they're transitioning down from it, they are looking for something else to kind of match their needs. So adversity rising is really my way of doing that. And I find, I think very similar to what you're doing with the podcast, a lot of the times too, it creates a sense of safety and security for people to go, oh, wait, that's kind of what you talk about in therapy. I like that. Wait, I want that. What? Okay. Or that's an accessible thing, or this isn't a me thing that's unfixable. This is something that people go through and there are trained professionals that help people through that. So that's really kind of the bulk of what I do in that setting and within my company. And it's, I'm trying not to let scope creep, make it expand too much. Cause there's always that I want to do a little bit of everything but really centering myself on, again, making things as accessible for people as possible within my scope and realm of practice. Yeah, I, I like what you're doing in terms of filling in some of the, the gaps, I think, that there are uh, for people. It, sometimes it does feel kind of black and white, right? I'm either in active weekly or biweekly or monthly treatment or I'm not. Um, and there isn't a ton of gray area or ways to, like you said, either titrate down or to kind of build and step our way up. Um, and so this way uh, of being able to kind of remove that, remove the curtain, right? And be able mm-hmm. to allow people to see uh, what, what is this? Because mental health care, there's so much stigma around it and there's so much mystery, I feel like, around it that um, that being able to go, okay, we're going to take off the blinders. We're just going to put it all out there. This is what it is. Um, just really allows for, for people to get into those, those levels of care that might be appropriate. Also giving more options, always Mm -hmm. wonderful. Um, So being able to empower people by giving different options for levels of care for different phases of their lives or different situations they might be in, uh, I think is so important and powerful. Well, and I think too, because we've seen this huge saturation in coaching and other services, which all has a place and is really great. There's a lot of misconceptions, especially for people that are new to understanding what is, how do I identify what my problems are or what my pain points are and what I'm looking to talk to somebody about or address. And then what's the appropriate fit for me within that. And I think I do coaching outside of, because, you know, I think it's the same in Iowa. I didn't actually look up your state, but when Wisconsin and here, you can only see people in the States you're licensed in and only, I mean, telehealth has really allowed us to see within the broad spectrum of our States. And for a while we had something where I could see patients in Washington. We did sort of a reciprocal thing during the pandemic, but also understanding that what I can do as a coach still as a therapist looks different from what maybe somebody that's licensed as a coach, not even licensed, but certified, whatever their appropriate things are as a coach. And then what I can do in the therapy room and how that looks different from coaching. So there's a lot of these, okay, wait a minute. I thought you're just in this helping field. So this isn't right. And I think that has also been a lot of the conversations I can have. The other thing is thinking about, and I don't know if you all feel this way too, but so much of the work that's being done is happening outside of the therapy room, you know, so they have this hour a week or hour every other week or whatever it might be. And that's great. And some awesome work can be happening there. Well, what are the resources and supports? And then what's that sort of foundation for people to have that internal kind of reset or those internal resources. And I think the other thing is the more we have podcasts like this, we have blogs, we have videos, we have different tools that address different learning styles. The more we're setting people up the next time something happens to be equipped with these skills and resources again, to make accessing services easier and, or to make supporting themselves easier too. 
Absolutely. I think the more information that we can put out there, uh, the better. And so you come from a very uh, unique uh, perspective because you're doing both mental health therapy and you're doing coaching. So if a person comes in and says, I don't know, I just want, I need support. Here's what's going on with me. How do you help them to determine which service might best serve them or what combination of services might best serve? I love this question. And I think it also poses some of the issues within our field and what's covered and what's recognized. And I do think there is so much, I mean, we see this even for a licensed mental health counselor. So in the state of Oregon, I'm a licensed professional counselor in other states, you're called something different, your licensure can look different. And so we know that there has to be some regulation and therefore what's covered or seen as being paid for by our insurance and things like that. It's all kind of wonky. One of the things that I tend to lean towards in general is if you have insurance and it covers you to see a therapist and you find a good fit, use that because if you're paying for your insurance, you shouldn't also have to pay out of pocket to be able to then see and talk to somebody. And we know the majority of coaching isn't covered. It is an out-of-pocket cost. And so one of the things I really tend to lean towards is having that conversation, but then also being really honest that part of what allows them to be in therapy is getting a formal diagnosis. And so that can also be a tricky thing to say that comes with therapy. That's part of what that looks like. So that's a lot of the discussion I have is we're looking at your resources of time, money, and energy, and how do we maximize the way that we're spending all three of those. And in some instances, maybe finances are less of a stressed resource. And so we can open it up a little bit more for a lot of people, especially in, and as we come out of the pandemic, there is more stress on that resource. Then we say, okay, so how do we access that? And then what does that look like to find the therapist or find the support that looks right for you? And I think that I just did a blog post and a video about a blog post about where you're not getting anywhere in therapy and a video about how to find the right therapist and really thinking about how kind of similar to a job interview that when we're interviewing for a job, we forget that we're interviewing them too. Mm -hmm. So when somebody comes in and they don't have questions for me, so I always do a free consultation, whether it's coaching or therapy, because I want to know that I can work well with you and you need to know that you can work well with me. And obviously there's tension points. That's part of the goal in the work, but we have to know that we have a baseline connection and liking with each other to be able to show up and do the work together And I think it also gives us an easier out because if we just have a consultation, you haven't been waiting for months on a wait list, you aren't doing this 90 minute intake and going, well, now I don't want to wait six more months. I'll just, I'll stick with this person. And that's my therapy experience as an adult was very much laden in that. And as a kid was very much laden in just being sent to anybody that would see a kid. And so, yeah, so I think a lot of the conversations are around Okay, first, we need to think about finances and accessibility. Second, we need to think about what is it, what are your actual pain points and problems so that we can match that with people that have the skills and services that matter to them. In some instance, that might be shared identities, whether that's race, gender identification, things like that might be having a specialization. So again, I specialize in eating disorders, and there's an extensive amount of training that goes into doing that. And it's really important that people see somebody that know eating disorders and know how to respond and work within the medical side as well to do that. So we kind of go through those conversations. I think the two biggest things that come up for people is, I mean, and most of my work and most of what I talk about is shame. And so a lot of people, it's like, I just don't feel good. Like it's sort of the fine mentality. They're existing in this sort of predictably crappy feeling like life is okay, but I feel sort of this resentment. I feel this loneliness. I feel this detachment. And that is the trickier part to help people navigate through to say, well, you really could do both. I also don't want to pathologize it with a label. So if you go to therapy and there is this diagnosis, how do we help you reframe it that that's not a pathologizing thing? It's an identification that this is a problem that deserves some attention. So I know I'm kind of answering your question with a much broader response, but I think, yeah, just really unpacking that for people and realizing how do we, again, maximize those resources in the way that's most effective. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that the consultation uh, beforehand to be able to go through all of those pieces, 
uh, I would imagine is very helpful to people so that they can know what the different options are uh, and then kind of decide what might make the most sense in their situation, given the particular barriers that they might have, whether they're uh, in terms of <clears throat> the presenting problem or whether it's in terms of uh, mental health diagnosis or if it's a financial barrier, transportation barriers um, sometimes as well. So. Yeah, absolutely. So tell me more then about uh, shame, because I know that um, you said that a lot of your work focuses around shame and a lot of people don't really understand quite what shame is. Um, and it gets so confused with like embarrassment or, you know, humiliation or uh, these other things with guilt. It's so often just wrapped around in all of these together um, and we kind of in our society use them very interchangeably. Um, so tell us about shame. How does shame differentiate itself from maybe some of these other feelings that we might be? Yeah, I love that. I think I think more and more people are becoming aware of, and then that's becoming, I think, sort of a household name to hear and know of Brene Brown. And so more people are like, oh, I know, I know her, I know shame. But there's still this kind of misnomer of what it actually is and what it means and what it looks like in terms of kind of a lifelong or an iter iterative process of unlearning and moving through and moving around and whatever that is. And so, yeah, I would say I started my clinical work having gone through my own childhood trauma, my own eating disorder, work in the field of what does recovery look like, what is living with PTSD and generalized anxiety look like. And so much of my own learning process then coupled with my work in my master's program and my internships and as I got started in my practice was about realizing there's a lot of commonalities in terms of identity that people have. And when we're really thinking about what the work looks like, a lot of it is tied to or tethered to these, you know, I trained in cognitive behavioral therapy. So I use core beliefs. I know a lot of people use the term limiting beliefs. That's been used a lot more, I think on a social level, but the idea of our innermost beliefs that we have about ourselves and our place in this world. And all of us have to develop a sense of identity of a positioning of self of a, what does it mean to be a part of this community and to belong? And we require belonging. And I think many of us aren't taught that that sense of belonging is on the same level of food, water, shelter. We have to have a sense of community and belonging in order to survive. And so as we're born, many of us, you know, whether it's in the U.S. where we all are, or if it's in other countries, there's systems of operation and there are isms that perpetuate those systems as well. So we see people in our country, we see white, thin bodies, you know, cisgender males. There's certain things where it's like, oh, well, they're treated differently than someone that doesn't have these identities. Well, if I have these other identities, that means I'm inherently not as good. Therefore, I have to make up for that. It might be things like parents, caregivers, adults that were around saying, you know, don't talk like that, be quiet, put your emotions away, whatever those things are. And we go, oh, okay, so emotions, I can't show those. There's something wrong with me that I'm feeling so deeply, so I have to change that. So we have all these experiences that kind of contribute to this feeling of I am inherently not good enough, worthy, lovable, whatever it is, until I do X, Y, and Z. And that sort of births this okay, so I have to perform a certain way. I have to, for me as a little kid, it was, I was a very parentified child. I had to take care of everything. I never could have my emotions get in the way of taking care of everybody else. I had to have good grades. I had to have a certain body type. I had to present a certain way. Tension would get created with things like when I was in middle school and high school, the even think of the fashion sort of idea of what you're supposed to wear, what was in fashion, what made you cool? I couldn't afford that, or my hair looked different than other people's. And so what did that look like? Well, that's all the entry point for shame. Shame in and of itself is this feeling of a threat to connection and belonging. And shame, I like to think about it as like a kind of the used car salesman that comes in and preys off of that tension of feeling like we're not good enough. And it's like, no, 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 just listen to me. I got you. Just do what I tell you and everything's going to be fine. Just follow these rules. This is the system. If you can do this, it's going to be good. And you're so desperate to have that certainty of belonging. You go, oh, I'll take that. I'll take that. And it's this slow erosion of self then to the performance. It's like, well, you know, I could dress that way. That's fine. So it's just, it's just these clothes. I could cut my hair that way. I could not 
tell people that I secretly hate country music, even though all my friends want to listen to country music in the car. Like I can pretend to like it. It's okay. And then it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And every time we can't meet an expectation, we try to avoid it, hide from it, whatever it might be. And the tension starts to erupt over time. And so shame is really this constant feeling as though we're a step away from being found out as not being good enough, not being worthy, not being lovable, unless we meet these expectations. And kind of your point around the different words and terms, I I think it is Brene Brown that said this, but I don't know exactly who, if it was her originally or someone else, but really the kind of boiled down point of guilt versus shame is that guilt is this incredibly powerful and oftentimes really helpful emotion that says my actions, my behaviors go against my values or the values of the society that I belong in and want to show up for. But it's a very specific thing about what we do. So it can be changed. It can be grown from, it can be learned from whatever that is. Shame is the belief that, again, goes back to you at your core are unworthy and unlovable. And if you're broken, you can't fix that. So I think about the example now that I have a two-year-old is I'll notice these words that are sort of in us that we'll use. Well, if you're bad or you are a liar or you're, you know, whatever, a good eater, again, I work in eating disorders. So we're super focused on food neutrality in our house and body connectivity. So if someone's like, oh, she's such a good eater, she in and of herself is not good or bad because of how she eats. She purely eats sometimes more, sometimes less, but there's a neutral response. And if she internalizes that, then that becomes synonymous with that experience of shame over time. Oh gosh, you said so many great things. So I, I love this difference between guilt and shame. Love that, yeah, shame really does grab us by the core of our survival instincts because we need the group. We need acceptance of other humans in order to survive in the wild. We're pack animals. Um, And so when when we are rejected by our pack, uh, that's a dangerous thing. If a wolf is rejected by their pack, they're out there by themselves. Um, And that's a dangerous thing for their survival. And for us, uh, very similarly, we are wired the, that same way, where it feels as though somebody doesn't like our haircut, and that can feel to us like our life is in danger. Um, and so we can kind of reflect it that way, um, and we feel it. And if we've been feeling that for our whole lives, right, or, or the last 10, 15, 20 years, we feel that feeling, and we don't register it because it's just the way that we feel. <laughs> and then we, we erroneously uh, attribute that feeling to, well, that thing happened and I did this or that, right? And so we, we erroneously attribute it to, well, I felt that way because this or that, right? And what it really comes down to is that, no, I felt that way because I don't feel like I'm worthy, lovable, valuable as a person. I think that it all has to do with my behaviors. And then uh, guilt, like you said, extremely powerful when utilized correctly. And, uh, and you know, they always talk about like guilt tripping, right? How guilt, and when what people mean is shame tripping uh, because guilt tripping, uh, well, also not pleasant because we have to come to terms with our own responsibility and our own behaviors can be super helpful and actually can be very validating. Um, so, you know, I love what you're saying about being a parent because uh, as I was learning about this and then my, my daughter's five and I, I went, oh my gosh, I'm saying so many things to her that are about who she is when what I mean to be uh, discussing is what she's doing, right? So stop being naughty, right? Is not, it, it, that has to do with her. So that's sending the message that like, you are naughty versus Monica, do not jump on the couch, right? Because I need you to be safe. You want to be safe in the house. You don't want to get hurt, right? That's a value of the house. That's a value of mine that I'm sharing with her. It doesn't have to do with who she is. It has to do with that's not a behavior that reflects the safety value, right? And so uh, being able to be intentional about that as a parent, not only in the the messages that we're sending to our kids, but in the messages we're sending to ourselves, 
um, is is so important and so useful. Um, so I love that. And I, I find myself, you probably find yourself doing this all the time with your daughter. Somebody says something like, oh, they're such a good eater. What a good girl. They've eaten all their, yeah. right? And do you, do you ever find yourself going, yeah, she tries all kinds of th new things, right? Or yeah, she eats when she is hungry. Like, do you ever find yourself kind of like trying to override some of those messages and then uh, yeah. And that is, it is the most uncomfortable thing. And I think it, honestly, it's what me disrupting shame in our culture, whether it's somebody else unintentionally bringing shame in and shame shows up on both sides because shame is threat. It's fear. So it's, it happens. It's this all or nothing. Cause we know that our fear brain only knows yes or no safe or unsafe. And so as soon as we start to condition polarities again, of a good eater versus a bad eater or whatever it might be, then what we're saying is if you aren't here, then you're here. And this is where the threat is. If you're not, you know, at this end, and then if you're at the quote unquote good side, you're panicked about losing it. And then when you're at the bad side, you're doing whatever you can to get to the good side. So every time those things happen, I think when we are trying to change internally and change systems, that's why it feels so draining and exhausting. Because when people are existing on automation around these systems of survival, because everyone's in that sort of hypervigilant state, just trying to keep themselves from being detached from the culture, detached from the world. It's really hard. And yes, it happens all the time. And I'm super grateful that my husband is really on board with that. So the two of us are very much a united front, but it is, I mean, every time it's a rule in our house, you do not make a self-deprecating comment about yourself. You do not make a self-deprecating comment about anybody else. We never talk about other kids at the playground or the parents or caregivers, even though sometimes that is all I want to do when I get back in the car, because I'm a human and we are a product of up and down comparisons. And so we don't do that. We do a lot of just explaining what's happening and why that might make us feel a certain way. But that's incredibly hard because it's constantly having to say, thanks, we don't talk about that. We don't talk about how much she eats. We don't talk about how big that bite is. We don't talk about what this feels. And it feels like you spend more time with your loved ones teaching them versus allowing them to be present. And that's really challenging. And it's whether it's with your kids or with yourself, getting people to stop commenting in ways that perpetuate shame. It's similar to when we think about things like racism or something on a larger scale, the burden of responsibility oftentimes gets put on the person that is being shamed or the person that is being oppressed in some way. And that's incredibly unfair in so many points. And when it comes to shame, it's the only option that we have because the system has to get disrupted from an internal place. And we have to be okay with the tension that gets created when someone else feels upset because now you made a comment that makes them feel shame. You can't take that on to make it better for them because they feel bad because they made a crappy comment. Instead, you give them compassion and say, oh, that makes total sense. You want to say that that's not what we talk about here. But then if they do feel bad, you have to relinquish responsibility from that and allow that to be an invitation for them to work on it versus you absorbing it which is what your shame wants to do to make it all your, your responsibility to make sure everyone else is okay, but at the detriment to the point we're trying to make to move away from these systems. Absolutely. It's uh, sometimes just the, uh, it's validating while translating the message that they were trying to uh, give to us, right? So, uh, you know, like, oh, yeah, you are. So it, 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 when people say uh, about my daughter, you know, because my daughter's, I believe she is extremely beautiful. <laughs> okay, so people with like strangers will say that to her like all the time. And, um, and so we'll hear that. And for me hearing it, I, you know, like I, one, as her mom, and I have my own ego, right? So as her mom, like I like it. Um, but also I know what that, what that does to me and her. Um, and so when I hear something like that, it's always, it's always like the validation of what they're trying to do, which is they're trying to make her feel good. They're trying to connect to her. They're trying to maybe fill silence with talking to her, right? They're trying to, there are all those things that they're trying to do that are positive things to do. Um, and so just being able to validate that, you know, it's so kind of you to give her a compliment. She's so, and then filling in uh, things that are a little bit more behavioral, um, you know, or, or value-based. Um, into that that comment. 
um, I think is is such a tricky kind of tightrope rope to walk um, because, like you said, there's that shame spiral the opposite direction, and then it boomerangs back, and and we either accept it and absorb it into ourselves, or we don't. Um, and it's the it's the not absorbing it into ourselves, no matter what the other person does with the information. Um, that is is really where the hard work comes in. When I think, you know, this is probably a good point to as people are listening to this, what we tend to do when we are kind of founded in shame is now a lot of people are probably going, oh my gosh, I've said this thing to my kid or, oh my goodness, I've said that to a coworker. I've commented on somebody's weight before. I've commented on what they've eaten. And so now your shame, rather than hearing this and going, oh, this is a system that we all function in. Of course, things are hard for us. Of course, we all feel like we are constantly one step away from being good enough because it starts with my two-year-old who gets the same things you do. She had a stranger walk up to her the other day, tell her how beautiful she was and give her $5. And one, I'm like, I don't know what to do with this. I genuinely don't know what to do with this. I'm, I was so caught off guard and it's, she is a wonderful human. And that's what we talk about as we say, isn't everybody on the planet beautiful for so many different ways or so many different reasons. And how cool is it that we can see the beauty in others when we first meet them and, you know, trying to say these things, but it's then pausing and going, oh, that makes sense. And I think that's been my reframe as a parent, but also as a therapist, because so much of therapy has been rooted in beliefs of you go in and you get cured. And I think that's what people sort of feel like is I'm going to go and I'm going to feel better and everything's going to be great. So there's this initial panic of what does it mean about me if I go to therapy? This is overwhelming to even think about what that means or looks like to find a therapist, to find, you know, a support person, all that. And then they go into therapy and they don't feel quote unquote better right away. So then they go, well, what's wrong with me? Or vice versa, they start to feel a little bit better and they go, okay, I'm good. I'm ready. I'm done. And then you see that that's not how life works. And so I think the more I dove into shame, the more I realized that all of us, and especially those of us that are older, so, you know, your five-year-old, my two-year-old have had less experience with shame, but they have it. I mean, I see when my daughter spills a drink, she doesn't feel guilty. She feels such intense shame. Like she, it feels like a threat to her standing in our household and she will want to leave the table. She'll ask for alone time. Of course, she's, you know, a therapist kid. So she tells me I'm processing right now and she'll say all <laughs> these cute little things. I don't know if she actually knows what it means, but it's this idea of saying, no, she has it because all of us experience shame. Because again, going back to what you said, this is indoctrinated in us, similar to wolves, similar to other beings. So instead, what we say is the goal, if someone's going to therapy, the goal, if someone's listening to this podcast is not to shame yourself or find all the ways that you suck. Your brain's already good enough at doing that. It's saying the system is such that, of course, I feel that way. And of course, the way I communicate is going to be laden in that because that's what we do. That's how we've talked about things. So of course, when someone calls out something as racist, sexist, oppressive in some way, I'm going to immediately want to defend it because it feels like a threat to myself and feeling like something is wrong with me and I'm going to be ostracized from the community because we don't feel safe to flail and to fail. And so what we think about here is the process of therapy, the process of the internal work is learning how to constantly, again, go through this iterative process of experiencing shame, creating, you know, some people call it a mindful gap, but a pause to say, my reaction is going to be fear-based. It's going to be a threat. It's similar to any kind of trauma reaction that happens. It's a cortisol dumping. It's a, your body doing what it can. How do we come down from that enough to create a pause to say when that happens? And I feel this way, like, multiple days recently when she is going through really intense experiences and I get to the end of the day and I go, I'm a crappy mom. I didn't handle that right. I should be better. And then I pause and I go, how does that serve me and serve her to label myself as a bad mom? How can I reframe that? And if I can create the pause and say, I'm not the mom I want to be at all points in time. And I have more to learn and to grow. And at the end of the day, I'm willing to admit that and show up, which is more important than if I was perfect all the time. And so I think for people to think about it that way, rather than going, well, see, look, I do suck. I'm doing all this stuff. And now I'm screwing up my kid too, because I'm making these comments. We just have to be willing to relearn our systems and be willing to do that alongside the young people around us, whether you have kids or not. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, you know, once we, once we can identify that shame response, like, okay, 
this thing happened and now I'm tempted to feel this way and think this way and do these things because of, I'm tempted to let shame drive this car. Um, we can do that very intentional, like, I'm going to turn this into guilt. Like, I'm going to, you know, so I'm at the end of the day and I'm thinking over, you know, the argument I have with my daughter or my, or the argument I have with my husband, whatever it is. And I go, oh my gosh, I'm a bad wife. Right. And I go, I'm okay. I'm having temptation to think the thought I am a bad wife <laughs> because I just yelled at my husband for something stupid. Right. And so I'm having, if I can have the narrative of, okay, I am having temptation to think that I can separate that thought out from myself. And then if I can, um, if I can go, okay, I am a good wife who did something that does not align with that, which is yelling at my husband for a, a small reason, right? Uh, where he didn't deserve to be yelled at. Uh, and so if I can reframe it that way and go, no, who am I? I'm a good wife. What did I do? Something not in alignment with being a good wife. Okay, I need to, I'm gonna change that. I'm gonna change that behavior, right? Of yelling at my husband. Not, I need to change. I don't need to change. I'm, still, I'm already a good wife. So I don't need to change in order to have those things happen. So uh, I love what you're saying about that kind of intentional conversion um, of being able to turn that shame, that temptation for shame response, which is not helpful to anybody, um, into that guilt, intentional guilt response, which is helpful. That's motivating. It's driving. Um, so yeah, I think that is, that's amazing. And so you use this, these kinds of, uh, frameworks with your mental health counseling clients and with your coaching clients then. Yeah, I think, so this is kind of where I found, I had, unfortunately, because I had a lot of childhood trauma and I don't think, I think my family was a very traditional Midwest family. I like, they counseling was new to them. They didn't grow up experiencing it, understanding exactly what it is. They just knew, okay, I had, so my mom suffered from undiagnosed bipolar disorder. And subsequently she kind of had a lot of trauma pre having me, wasn't supposed to have a kid. She did have a kid. She was a single mom to me. And prior to getting pregnant with me, struggled with a lot of substance use, which looking back was probably a way of managing the bipolar but then she relapsed. And so she relapsed and had some issues that moved me to other family members' homes for a period of time. So after 12, I never lived with my mom again. And when I was living with other people, I think they just saw, we don't know what to do because this is a trauma that all of us have never gone through before, but she clearly just needs some help. And one of the things that I think happened was that I had a lot of therapists tell me how I was feeling or tell me what to do and how to get over it versus invite curiosity for me to explore what I was feeling. And I think that that is now as a therapist, it's way more comfortable to do that. It's way more comfortable to be leading in the therapy seat than to allow the possibility of someone exploring things because our own shame of feeling like, well, my job is to fix them. My job is to have it together. I have to know what to do. So if I can kind of guide a little bit more and I lead with that, that can be a protection mechanism. And as I got older and I experienced my own eating disorder and things like that, again, I was met with people. I didn't know that you needed to find specialists in the field. I didn't really know that an eating disorder would be different than depression or different from other things. I'm like, I just want to not constantly be either restricting or making myself throw up. Like that's not an okay thing for me to be doing anymore. I don't like this life. Something's wrong for me. It didn't, it didn't fit for me anymore. And I think what I saw then was people that again, sort of wanted to make sense of it and conceptualize it so quickly that we could move on to the fix, move on to the, what do we do with it? How do we make this better for you? And I think so much of all of that is wrapped up in our culture of urgency, whether it is this, you know, productivity, everybody's got to be doing all the time, or if it is what I call band-aid solutions, which is just give me the things to do right now to feel better. And I'm sure on some level, I asked for that as a patient. I, I don't remember a lot of those interactions, but then I think as the therapist or the clinician or anybody that's in those, those fields, you feel a pressure to want to do that too. Okay. So what's the fix? What's the answer? And so I think what happens is 
we unintentionally allow shame to continue to have a seat at the table because rather than addressing it and sitting in it and just allowing ourselves to feel completely crappy for however long we need to, to validate what's going on for us, to feel our emotions, to name them, to move through them, to allow ourselves the possibility to realize we don't have to make that feeling go away. You know, even going back to what you said about being, you know, a good wife versus a bad wife, even going deeper and saying, what would it mean to just say, I'm a wife without even having to have the idea that there's good or bad, but that takes so much willingness to not fix on both sides, whether it's the client or the therapist. And I think what I learned, the more I went through this process and the more I remember getting feedback in my intern year of, you're doing super great. All these things are amazing, blah, blah, blah. You have a tendency to never sit in silence. And of course, my shame brain heard that as you should never be a therapist. You suck. You're terrible. Cause you know, the one piece of feedback, your brain overinflates. But I did eventually kind of get to a point where I was curious about it and curious about why. And it's because I didn't have the experience growing up to allow myself to sit in a feeling there was again, good feelings and bad feelings. You stuff the bad feelings because they get in the way of taking care of everything else and moving forward. And so my program that I do, my model for, it's called Live on Purpose. That's why I'm creating this program for people to do outside of the therapy room, but it's basically my therapy modality. It's how do we actually define what's going on for us, but not just say, well, I don't like this. I want to fix this. Cause then we do what's called avoidant goal setting. It's the, I just want to be anywhere, but here. So I looked up Buzzfeed's 10 ways to be more assertive at work. And I tried it and everything should be better. And then when it's not, we continue the cycle of I'm doing something wrong. And then we start to figure out, but where does this come from? Because again, our pain is rooted to systems internally and externally, whether that is the decades of experience we had growing up and how we had to survive and thrive in our homes or in our family units, if it's living in the culture that you live in, whatever that is, what that does is it validates how you reacted. So let's, I'm just going back to your example of maybe when you did yell at your husband, there's a reason that happened. There's a reason that defense mechanism was intertwined with your fear response. There's something to that. So how do we validate that and validate that without saying, okay, so it's okay, keep doing it. But we say, that makes total sense. You know, mine is very self-sabotaging behaviors towards the eating disorder, towards, again, anything I see it now as a professional. Anytime I get something wrong with a client, it takes me weeks sometimes to remind myself that it is okay to screw up as a therapist. It's okay to not be able to help everybody as a therapist. But instead now I pause and I go, so where does that come from? Well, because from the time I was five, six, seven years old, I felt like if I wasn't perfect, I didn't belong. So of course, when I feel like I'm not the perfect therapist, I'm going to activate defense systems so that nobody finds that out. And then you kind of work through that. But that is, I mean, I would say even when I do a presentation and people come in, they're like, okay, so even my workbook that you mentioned, like, well, where's the fixes? Why don't I don't feel better yet? So you're not supposed to feel better. You're supposed to feel how you feel. And that's where I think therapy comes into play or whatever supports look like as someone that holds that with you to remind you, you're not alone in that. And there's an importance in sitting there because your brain's going to want to activate the defense. If someone else can say, let's just pause, you know, like I'm sure your five-year-old does this too, but when Everly starts to have this, like, I can see the meltdown coming, I can see it amplify. So let's just take a breath. Just let's just breathe and just give it a moment. And then we validate, of course you feel mad right now because you want trail mix and mom's saying, we're not going to have trail mix. Of course that feels terrible. You get to feel terrible for as long as you need to. Let's just take a breath because we can give our body space to feel what it's feeling without it becoming destructive. And that's what we learn over time is whether it's self-destructive or destructive of others or systems, that's the part we're detaching from and then validating the feelings we feel as we go through it. You've, you've said it this way so many times and I, I think it's just great. I love, I love hearing it every time you say it, that of course, like, of course it, it, I'm feeling that way. Of course I'm thinking these thoughts. Of course I said that, that right. Like I, I love that because it, one, it's validating just in the connection that we have to our, the world around us and the people around us as well, right? That like, we're not an island doing things because of who we are. We are uh, doing things because of we who we are, but we're connected to other people and places and, and society in general and culture. Um, and so I think it's validating even in that. Um, and 
with my daughter when I when I see the build up right we've been doing it she I'll say we need to drink some water and like we have to drink some water through a straw and that is so helpful I don't know why but it's so so helpful when we drink water through a straw and then uh, you know I'll try to say things to her like you really wanted that like you you really wanted to read that other book tonight like you really wanted you did not want to turn off the light right now right and also try to say things to her like that and I think that those kinds of things that we do for our kiddos we don't always do for ourselves um and be able to say to ourselves like of course I was mad of course I had that feeling when my husband did not um pick up the mail at the PO box, like he said he would yesterday, because not because he is a horrible human, but because my one of my core beliefs is that I can't depend on other people, right? So because I've got this core belief that says I can't depend on any other person, um, then when he does not pick up the mail, like he said he was going to, that that triggers two things. One, it triggers the core belief of I can't depend on other people. And two, it triggers, like, if that delays something that I was supposed to do, now it triggers, I can't do anything correctly. <laughs> like, it triggers both things at the same time. And of course I feel that way. That Those are two of my core beliefs, right? They're, they're hindrances, but they're there. Um, and they come up in weird ways, like you didn't pick up the mail when you said you were going to. Right? And my husband's like, I'll pick it up tomorrow, <laughs> right? Like it's less than a mile from the house. Like I'll pick it up tomorrow. And yes, that sounds perfectly reasonable. But when we dig into, okay, but why did I have that reaction? And am I allowed to have that reaction? You know, uh, I, I think it's so important. So yeah, I love what you're saying about validating the why because those, well, those are real things. And even just what you said of like, how in that moment when he doesn't do that, it feels like the rejection. So that's what, you know, again, validates your core belief because that is the feeling of if my core beliefs are this, if these are the rules and the systems that I have, as soon as something happens that aligns with that, that is the worst kind of rejection because it reinforces the belief that we have all along that we are inherently not worthy of the connection in the world. And I think one of the things that comes up so much I don't know, I don't remember where it comes from. I just know it's talked about a lot in codependency, but the idea of the drama triangle. And I think about the drama triangle, which for anybody that hasn't heard of it before is this idea of there's three pillars. There's the hero, the victim, and the villain. And I think about the drama triangle as it relates to shame. So shame is ego-driven. It means, and ego doesn't mean you're egotistic because we always think, well, ego means you have such a self-importance or this inflation of the self. Ego is when everything centers on you. And what shame does is it hooks us in the drama triangle. So we are always playing the hero, the victim, or the villain in everyone's story, including our own. And so we are either the hero, meaning we have to take care of everything for everybody. So I'm sure there are people listening to this right now that you are the person that takes care of everyone around you. You hold all the secrets, you handle all the meltdowns, whether it's kids, your partner, your friends, people at work, you're the one that has to have it all together all the time. And then as soon as something doesn't go right, whether that's a coworker gives you a look in a meeting or you know your husband doesn't pick up the mail, then the villain comes in of somehow that's going to connect to me being the problem. I didn't ask him early enough. I didn't communicate my needs. I didn't say this. I should have just picked it up at this point, whatever that could be. If it's the coworker, look, it's, well, what did I do? Oh my gosh, I didn't ask them about this. I bet that they're upset about these things. So everything becomes rumination on that. And then when we reach a breaking point, that's where the victim part comes in, which is just feeling like the only other sort of kind of side of the swinging is to go, what well, has to be everybody else's fault. I have no control. The world is terrible. And then as soon as we go there, we swing right back to just kidding. It's all my responsibility. I'm responsible for everything. And we can't exist at either side. And that's that overvaluing of or over assuming of responsibility and control. We don't have no control, but we don't have all the control either. And so really working through shame is getting the ego to kind of be recalibrated in a way that says, no, you still need to be here because your job is to make sure that I am seen. Your job is to make sure that I do show up, that I don't allow myself to drift into the background. 
there are other ways we can do that that aren't so destructive. And so that I think is kind of the pillar point of what ultimately what I get at, whether somebody comes to see me for trauma, major depression, eating disorders, whatever that looks like, adjustment disorders, social anxiety, it all comes back to this point of how do we help the brain unwire and then rewire new systems that don't constantly put it in that state of threat where we fall on either of those sides of the spectrum and then engage in these defenses that leave us in that perpetual state of crappiness. Absolutely. I love that. Yeah, the the triangle and, and feeling like we're all three at the exact we're having that rapid shifting between them. And then, you know, if my husband doesn't pick up the mail, I feel like a victim, but I also feel like uh like I need to be my own hero, right? And then I go and be the villain to him, right? And, like, and then he's like, what the heck, man? I didn't deserve that. And then and so now I've been the villain to him. Now he feels like a victim. He feels like he has to be a hero, right? And and it just continues on and on. And that's how she is too, right? We if we if we see somebody intentionally or unintentionally uh, perpetuating shame in themselves and somebody else in us, uh, and then and then we feel like a victim and go, oh, I need to be a hero here, right? And so we do, and then that person sees us that we're being the villain in that story, and so. Uh, it, it is so difficult to bring ourselves to center of that triangle or pyramid um, and not be, you know, ping-ponging between the three, but really to be able to be in the center. Um, and, and it is work. It is hard work. And I'm just so glad that you are out there and, and doing these trainings and doing this uh, these, this blog work and, um, and the videos and the individual counseling and the individual coaching um, and adversity rising to be able to spread this message to other people. I think a lot of people probably heard themselves in, <laughs> in a lot of these things. And what I love about that is you're going, yeah, of course you, of course you heard yourself. <laughs> I, I heard myself too. <laughs> Of course, you heard yourself with these things. You're a human. Yeah. One of your courses should be like, of course, you're what. Yeah, of course, you did. Like, take a look at yourself. I I love that idea. It's like the next, like the next big like TED talk or something. It's like, of course, like that is all it is. Just of course, you feel that way, and like going through all these things because I think that is as soon as somebody else can name it for us, it's like, like, and I'll watch it again. I think watching a toddler is one of the best ways to understand humans in general, because we're no different from their brains. We're just more complicated, but those same emotions are the same that we just present differently with them, but she's feeling everything that I do. So when I watch her, the moment I can validate how she's feeling, I watch her come down. The moment I can name it and hold it and make space for it without trying to make it go away, the more she is able to just relax in that. And I think that is the thing that the of course suggests is you are not ridiculous for feeling this way. Your emotions get to be here. They get to be present. And of course, you constantly find yourself feeling this way. And I think as soon as we can give that to people who spent years assuming they're the problem, what we're doing is saying, therefore, this makes sense that you have suffering. This makes sense that you have pain. And it would make sense then that you want to talk to somebody about it. It would make sense that you want to have a space that gets to be yours where you talk about this. And in particular, and that's what I tell people from a therapy standpoint, recently I gave a presentation at a high school and I had a student come up to me afterwards. It was a very interesting interaction. All they said to me was, so you're a therapist, right? I said, yes. And he goes, do you go to therapy? And I said, yes. And he goes, thank you. And walked away. That was it. That was the whole interaction. I'm sitting there going, what in the world were they trying to get at? But I think what it is, is this normalization of I'm also a human and I am talking to you about my vulnerabilities and I am not better than you because I sit on this side because the other times of the week, I'm sitting on the other side of it and I'm falling apart just like you are. And so I think when we do get at this point of saying shame is a universal human experience what that says is therefore all humans deserve to have space to process it because it's the most complex experience that we have. And if somebody else can talk about it with us and validate that for us, it's going to allow us to stop being controlled by it and allow us as a system, as a culture 
to start changing the ways that we show up so that we aren't constantly in that state of hypervigilance. Wonderful. Wonderful. So if you could give one suggestion to somebody on the fence about starting counseling, what suggestion might you give that person? I think, honestly, probably a big part of it goes back to what I was just saying around this idea that you deserve to be there. You deserve the space. I think one of the things that comes up a lot for people is this, again, going back to the idea of upward and downward comparison, we either feel like we're unfixable or we feel like, well, my problems aren't as bad as somebody else's. And then we, we tend to have stories and narratives that go along with either side of it. So if I'm unfixable by other people, it could also be, well, the burden of responsibility is on me and I have to do this and I have to figure it out. Again, Midwest people and the kind of the culture I grew up in, it was very much pull yourself up by your bootstraps, put on a happy face and get going. And so I think when we fall on that side or the other side of, you know, again, feeling like other people have it worse, we take away the right to have space to communicate. And so really thinking about how therapy is something that allows everybody the opportunity to process whatever their biggest pain points are in their own story, not as they compare to anybody else's. And whether that is, I'm having a hard time as a parent, as my kid, you know, in COVID and figuring out what that looks like and I feel burnt out, or if it is, I have such bad depression, I, I don't, I can't get out of bed anymore. And I think just allowing yourself to have those conversations. And I think, I know you're asking for one, but the second thing I would tell people is then to also think about it kind of like dating do not assume that the first counselor that you meet is the right fit for you and make them put in the work to build that connection. Because what we know now is that rapport is the most important indicator on what movement people make in therapy. And so not coming in, just allowing them to take the power role in the seat, but saying, I am the expert on my life. Somebody else is going to help give me tools and tweaks and reframes to do it but they need to be in alignment with the things that are important to me and the values that I have. And so making sure that you come into it, not in a state of you're helpless and you have nothing to offer and they're just coming to fix you and you're broken, but saying, no, I want to be the one driving and I deserve to be driving. And it's okay if the right fit doesn't happen right away. That doesn't mean anything about me. It just means that I get to choose the right person who gets the privilege to work with me in this part of my journey. Absolutely. Love that. So Kira, how can people um, find you if they're in Oregon? How can they get in touch with you guys? Um, if they are looking for the blog and, and your videos, where can they find you? Yeah, I think the easiest thing to do is to just go straight to my website. So it's adversityrising.com. And they can find everything there. I have tabs up top for watch, read, listen, so they can find any podcasts, any videos I've done, blog posts I've done. They can also learn about other programs I do. I do, for example, a therapeutic book club that is kind of deeper processing work that people do and they join from all around the country and they're able to kind of have these conversations in this supportive setting. And then because it's me that runs my business and I'm the one that answers every email, if people have a therapy specific question, I can always kind of send them over to my other email and respond from that too. So I think going there, reaching out to me and I don't do anything on social media. I do a little bit, I suppose, on, on LinkedIn, but Really, I think joining my email list is the best way for people to get in touch with me or stay regularly in touch. And so they can join there right under the connect section on my website too. They'll see a link to do that as well. Perfect. Thank you so much for being here, Kira. It's been really, really great getting to talk to you and getting to, to hear about all of the things that you're doing and all of the resources and information that you're putting out there for people um, to, to be able to Take, take the mystery out of counseling and make it more accessible for everybody involved. I'm Kira Wackett and I need a counselor. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you. So do I. So does Chris. I actually, I love hearing therapists say that they have a therapist. I just think it's, who better to model the benefits of therapy than therapists? Uh -huh. <laughs> and, and we, if we are walking the walk that we are talking to say like no we don't get to a point where like wow look at me i've got everything together i don't need therapy like that's not how it works <laughs>
we are always going to have uh, active projects within ourselves. We're always going to have active goals and things that we are uh, working towards and, and things that we need to express, things we need to get out there. Um, so I, I just always think that's so beautiful. Thank you so much, Kara, for being here. This has been great. Thank you. I'm so glad we got to do this today. <laughs> yes. So uh, if you are in Oregon, definitely uh, reach out to Kara uh, at Adversity Rising. And actually, if you're anywhere, really, you can benefit from those resources. Um, but if you're looking for outpatient mental health therapy um, in Oregon, uh, definitely reach out to Kara as well. Um, and then if you're looking for outpatient mental health therapy in Iowa, um, give us a call at Heart and Solutions, 800-531-4236 or uh, heartandsolutions.net. And like Julie mentioned at the beginning of the episode, we post every Sunday night at 5 p.m. Central. So save up your laundry or your meal prepping or your treadmill workout or walking outside and um, set that date with yourself to listen to our new episode and to help reach out to some um, of our services that we talked about on our podcast as well. So if you have any questions as well for us or for Kira, you can reach out to us on Facebook at Unity Counselor Podcast or on our Instagram at Unity Counselor Podcast there as well. So I'm Krista Hunt. And I'm Julie Johnson and we need a counselor. And so do you. Bye. Bye.